Hello and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Shani Tarragon and today we're going to begin our conclusion of Parshat Mitzvah with the last few parshiot that deal with different forms of Tum'ah Hayotzeit Menhaguf, the different physiological emissions that render one Tameh. Before we do, we take a look at one of the queries that arises at the end of Parshat Mitzvah, namely the closure of the significant parshia the section that described all the different forms and thereby processes through which a person and henceforth a bayit is going to be purified of tzarat. The section ended, if you recall, at the end of chapter 14, verse 57. Hatzarat. Firstly, we see a beautiful bookend, as we discussed, that reminds us of Perak Yud, Sukim Yud, but especially Yud Aleph. The point of this interrupting section, so to speak, between the deaths of Nadav and Avihu and what we're going to soon see, the return to the regularly scheduled narrative, is in order to teach Am Yisrael how to distinguish between what God mandates as Kodesh versus what is Chol, what God allows as Tameh versus Tahor, when one can or cannot come into the Mikdash. But also for the Kohanim in particular, who are constantly engaged in the Mikdash, to be the ones to teach B'nai Yisrael these distinctions. So note then that the end of Parshat Mitzorah, just like the end of the parsha of the Machalot Me'ot and Tahorot, which referred us back to Lahavdil Ben HaKodesh Ben HaChol, or lahavdil ben hachaya haneachelet o ben hachaya asher lo taachel, and now lahorot biyom hatamei o biyom hatahor serves as the perfect bookend for parakyu pasuk yud aleph o lahorot et bnei yisrael et kol hachukim asher diber hashem aleihem biad moshe, showing us that in fact the kohanim are going to be the ones in particular who will teach, who will instruct biyom hatamei o biyom hatahor. They will diagnose when amitzora or his bayit, or his beged, is considered tameh or tahor, keeping in mind that these are different terms than kodesh and chol, which are God-mandated terms that define whether something allows for an intensive relationship with God or is going to have the more neutral terminology of chol, as opposed to tumah and tahara, which are almost subordinate divine terms that are going to be pending on a presence of kedusha. And therefore, once we have a presence of Kedusha, we also have the possibility of something being defined as limited from that presence, that's Tum'ah, versus Tahara, which allows for one to avail oneself to the presence of Hashem, speaking still within the context of the Mishkan. That having been said, we now understand that the Kohanim are going to be responsible for determining the status as was clearly delineated by the Parshia itself, they're the ones who determine the status of a mitzvah, even if at times it means placing him in quarantine until they can further clarify the status, and thereby, that will determine all the following instructions with regard to what he must do as a mitzvah, or what he has to do with his bigot, or what he has to do with his bayit. That is why we are somewhat confused when we take a look at the very next section, which seems to continue on one hand with the topics of Tumah and Tahara, when one is going to be rendered physiologically Tameh or Tahor and thereby limited from going to the Mikdash, 
we would think that now that the bookends has been complete, we should go back to Achare Moch Nebene Aharon, which is in fact not the next section, but the section thereafter. Why do we have one long Yechida, comprised of, as we'll see, two Parshiot Ptuchot and four Parshiot Stumot, that all deal with other forms of Tumot Hayotot Menhaguf? Shouldn't that have appeared before the closure of Lahorot Biyom HaTameh Oviyom HaTohor Zotorat HaTarat? Or in other words, if this is really part of the same section of Lahorot or of different forms of Tumah, then it should have been included before the closure of Pasuk Nun Zayin. If it's really an independent section, then why not place this after Acharei Mochnei B'nei Aharon? And the answer seems to be, clarified through the term of Lohorot Biyom HaTameh. In other words, everything until now really was diagnosed by the Kohen. This is going to be one of the expressions of how the Kohen, who is constantly engaged in the Mikdash, is the one who should instruct Am Yisrael with regard to distinguishing God's mandates of not just Kodesh and Chol, but Tuma and Tahara, and therefore someone who has a white spot on his body and isn't sure if this is just scar tissue from a burn or is tzarat mechvat esh, he must go to the diagnostician or, in other words, the kohen, in order to determine what his status is, for the kohen is the one most proficient in these laws. However, the Torah is teaching us that there are certain forms of tumah that the kohen isn't necessarily going to diagnose. He may set the standard, and as such, Torah kohanim, he will be the one to instruct with regard to these laws, but the goal is ultimately that every member of Am Yisrael, as we've seen from the very onset of Sefer Vayikra with the words of Adam Kiakriv Mikim, every person has to take responsibility for also one status as being Tamei and Tahor, and although we're going to learn the standard from the Kohanim, there are going to be various situations wherein it's not the Kohen who determines the status of a person's Tuma and Tahara, but rather, as we're going to learn right now, it's the person, him or herself. Only they know whether or not they are experiencing certain emissions that are coming from their body. And therefore, the Torah is telling us on one hand, The Tzarat section ends the Torah of the Kohanim, the instructions of the Kohanim, who will determine in that particular case whether a person is Tamei and Tahor. We're going to continue with different physiological forms of Tumah, and that's why we're not yet ready for Parshat Acharimot, because this is still part of a section of teaching Am Yisrael the laws of Tumah and Tahara, but it's outside of the realm of the Kohen, because it's not up to the Kohen to diagnose the person, but rather the person, him or herself, which now allows us to begin this next section of the physiological emissions that we're going to see begin with those of a man. And this I always enjoy teaching my students in particular to show that it's not about particularly Anida woman per se, who is going to be rendered Tmeya, but these laws originally are going to be universal or applying both to men and women with their respective emissions. So let us begin now with chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. So the first case, Hashem tells Moshe and Aaron, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say to them, When any man has an issue of his flesh, or generally what we've been calling 
הטומאה שיוצאת מגופו של אדם, some type of emission that will render him impure, keeping in mind that Chazal will derive from the term ish-ish, that this is going to be specific to a male, so some type of emission that comes out of him, but this in itself is very confusing, because we know that there are many emissions that may be emitted from a man's body, including saliva, including urine, perspiration, blood, semen, mucus, All of these are possible omissions that the Torah is referring to. Chazal will learn from the juxtaposition with the laws of Sheikh Batzerah that we're referring specifically to a seminal omission. This omission itself, the Torah tells us, renders a man impure. But this specific phenomenon of zotia tumato bizovo, rar bisoro etzavo, particularly if the seminal omission appears as a ririt, coming out really as a form almost of a membrane or like saliva, It's flowing from his body, and Chazal will also learn that this is referring specifically to a continuous flow that appears either three times in a 24-hour period or over the course of three days. Or specifically not coming out as a flow, but rather almost in spurts because there is some phenomenon wherein his flesh cannot properly release the semen. He is also, in this situation, considered Tameh. Many have tried to identify what this phenomenon is and have associated it with a modern-day gynorrhea, a sexually transmitted disease, and caused by certain microorganisms, which lead to a bacterial infection and henceforth some abnormal seminal emissions. Others try to identify this not as gynorrhea, but rather as non-gynococcal urethritis, which affects the urethra, causing some abnormal emissions also with regard to urine. In any case, it's very difficult to identify exactly what these manifestations of Zav are. So we're going to focus on what happens once he is rendered tummy, and keeping in mind that only he knows whether or not he's experiencing these abnormal seminal emissions, and what he does then to become pure again, to be able to return to the Mikdash. So we're going to see numerous patterns that are built, in fact, upon the laws of Tzarat. So let's continue now with Pasuk Dalid. וכלי חרס אשר יגבו הזב יישבר, וכל כלי עץ יישטף במים. Let us see how the Torah has defined the different expressions of what happens once Azav experiences this emission. Not only is he considered impure, but we're going to see that he is then defined as an av hatuma, the source of tuma, wherein any bed that he is going to lie upon shall also be considered impure. Everything that he sits on shall be considered impure. And whoever even touches his bed or touches something that he sat on shall wash his clothes and immerse himself in water and be impure until the evening. 
And he who sits on anything that the Zav has sat shall wash his clothes, bathe himself, or immerse himself in water, and be impure until the evening. And if he touches the flesh of the Zav, then he also has to wash his clothes, basically immerse himself in water, and be impure until the evening. And if the Zav or the spit of the Zav came upon him, he also must wash his clothes, immerse himself in water, and be impure until the evening. And whatever saddle the Zav has sat on, and then a person rides on the same saddle, he will also be considered impure. I generally tell people in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, BYOS, bring your own saddle. Because here we see how the Tum'ah of the Zav is going to transfer to other people. And as we know, once one is an Av HaTum'ah, this can transfer to a person who will then be considered Rishon LaTum'ah, whose impurity stays with him until the evening. And Pasuk Yud, whoever touched anything that was under the Zav shall be impure until the evening, and he must also wash his clothes, immerse himself in water, and be impure until the evening if he's carried the person or been carried by such a Zav. So too, the Tumah of the Zav is transferred not only through people, but also through objects, through foods, through beverages, so that whomever and whatever the Zav has touched without having washed his hands will also be considered impure, and such a person who came in contact with this must wash his clothing, immerse himself in water, and be impure until the evening, such as a klicheres, an earthen vessel we already discussed because of its raw form, is going to contract the tum'ah of the Zav if it is going to be touched by him and must be broken in order to rid itself of tum'ah, as opposed to the more organic forms or natural forms of materials, such as a vessel made of wood, for which it suffices just to immerse it in a mikvah. And now we're going to continue with the process of purification. As we noted by the Mitzorah, the means through which one who is Tameh becomes purified tells us a lot about the significance or the comprehensive nature of one's Tum'ah. So as we continue now with Pasuk Yugimel, V'chiyetar hazav mizovo, v'safarlo shivat yamim letaharato, once the Zav stops the emission, the seminal emission that he was experiencing, that's not enough. He then must wait seven clean or basically semen-free days in order for him to be considered Tahor, and only then may he immerse himself in a mikvah. Note how this reminds us very much of the process of the Mitzorah after the skin manifestation of the Mitzorah has ceased and he has been cured basically of uh, the physical signs of Tarat, it's not enough for him to re-enter the camp, rather he needs a seven-day cycle. The seven-day cycle reminds us of Briyat Olam, a natural cycle, and that's exactly what the Zav has to prove right now, that he in fact is going to be healthy or natural and back to a normal state of nature by establishing a natural routine, a semen clean routine over the course of seven days, and only then may he immerse in the mikvah. This is very similar to the phenomenon today that I don't know how many really abide by, and that is that one after experiencing fever cannot immediately go back to school, but rather is supposed to receive a doctor's note to make sure that for 24 hours or so they did not have fever, noting that the resistance is rather low, and we wanna make sure that they're really back on track, that they've restored a natural state. And therefore, 
they have to wait some time, 24 hours, before they can prove that they're in fact healthy. Here we find that the Torah demands that natural cycle of seven days before the Zav, in this case, knows that he is healthy, and only then can he immerse in the mikvah. But that's not enough, because we've noted, just like by the Yoladet, that anyone who's been Tameh, even though it's not necessarily his or her fault, but anyone who's been in the state of detachment from the Mikdash for more than seven days has basically broken a natural cycle with the Mikdash, and therefore, before re-entering the Mikdash, has to offer the formula of a Karban Chatat followed by a Karban Ola. Almost as if to say to Hashem, Hashem, I'm sorry, it's really not my fault that I contracted this. But as a result, bishogeg, so to speak, or be'ones, it was beyond my control, but I wasn't able to express my relationship with Hashem through the mikdash. And that's why I'm bringing a chatat, followed by a nola. I'm sorry, but I really want to re-engage with Hashem. I want to bridge that gap that has been created through a distance with the mikdash. And that's why, as we continue with Pasuk Yudalid, Uvayom Hashmini Torim and on the eighth day, he takes two turtle doves or two young pigeons and comes before Hashem to the tent of the Mishkan and gives them to the Kohen. And the priest shall offer them one as a sin offering, the other as an Ola, the burnt offering. And that's how the Kohen is going to achieve kapara for him before Hashem. This process of kapara allows the Zav to regain and restore a relationship with the Mikdash. Note how this expression of an emission, particularly a seminal emission coming from a man's body, proven by the process of purification wherein he's required to wait seven clean or seven semen-free days, proves that the basis of the Tum'ah was this abnormal expression of an emission coming from his body. This is going to be juxtaposed now to the next three psukim, psukim tetzayin, yudzayin, and yudchet, which are going to teach us about the laws of a shechvat zara, a man who experiences a very natural emission of semen, and therefore we're going to see that the process of purification is not going to be as intense as we found by the zav. Let us continue then with verse 16. Now the Torah introduces the case of a man who has a regular flow of seed coming from his body, generally within the context of literally shechvat zara. He lies down and has an emission of semen. Such a person may immerse his body in a mikvah and will be considered impure until the evening. Note then that this is not a seven-day plus process, but rather he becomes tahor at the conclusion of that day, depending on his immersion in water, and this makes sense based on the natural expression of Shechvatzara. This is not an unnatural or some type of unhealthy status. This is as natural as one can be, but at the same time, he is still ren- rendered impure, consistent with what we discussed numerous years ago with regard to Tum'a being some expression of a loss of life, loss of seed. But 
This is part of the course of nature, so that Pasuk Yudzayin, V'chol Beged, V'chol Or, Asher Yehalav, Shech Batzara, V'chubas B'mayim, V'tamer Ha'ariv. Every garment, every part of skin, anything that came in contact with the zera, with the semen itself, has to be washed and is going to be considered impure until the evening, including the isha, asher yishkav ishota shechvatzara, v'rachatzu b'mayim v'tamu ad ha'ariv. The woman with whom the man shall lie and have zera, literally some of the semen come upon her, shall also be considered impure, and she also then must immerse herself in water and will also be considered impure until the evening. This, as we know, is the biblical law and the biblical expression of a woman who comes in contact with the semen. Chazal will derive that as long as the semen is still in contact with the woman, which ultimately will remain for 72 hours, which we know has been corroborated by modern day science, but basically, Chazal will teach us that it's really three days that the woman still has live semen or live sperm inside her body, and as such, she will remain impure for three or three plus days until she may go to the mikvah and then wait till the end of the day wherein she can then return to the mikdash. Note that this is really a natural form that is juxtaposed to the unnatural seminal emission. So, so far we have two male phenomena or two tumot of a man that will render him tame, beginning with uh, the longer expression and the more intense process of purification of the zav, followed by a parshia stuma, just uh, nine spaces that divide the section of the zav with the section of the shechvatzera, teaching us that obviously the two of them are connected, and as they're both uh, expressions of emissions that come from a male. Our next shiur bez ratashem will focus on the next section, which begins as a parshiyap tucha, because there is a division, because we're going to see the next stage relates to emissions that come from the female.